So, can you tell me how you would like to identify yourself? <laughs> um, well, at this point, I would like to remain anonymous, but um, we can call me a New Hampshire uh, halfway house girl or whatever. I don't know. I interviewed New Hampshire halfway house girl for the first time almost two years ago. At that time, she couldn't speak out like she wanted to. She was still serving the remainder of her sentence of almost 10 years. Currently, I'm at a, a halfway house that has a contract with the Bureau of Prisons. So I'm actually serving out a portion of my sentence in community confinement, which you know is typically known to the public as a halfway house. The halfway house had strict rules, and we did the interview secretly. We were in the closet of the place where she worked. We had to stop the interview sometimes when the toilet would flush. He said that he didn't... Thought he was in effect. Yes. <laughs> and we only had a limited amount of time. You know, too, as far as the audio goes, mm-hmm. I'm only going to have, um, like, in five minutes, I have to make a phone call. Oh, and then okay. in five minutes after that, we'll have to head up to the next destination. Okay, okay. She had to make a phone call from the landline of a place where she was at to the halfway house every time she moved from one place to the next. It was a lot more freedom than prison, but it was still oppressive. One day, I will definitely speak out more. Today is that day. You're listening to Borders, stories about borders by the people who cross them. I'm Caitlin Pierce. The woman you heard from before is Nicole Martin. She's been out of prison now for about a year. I visited her again at her job, but this time we didn't have to hide in the closet. She works as an accountant. Come on in. This is it. Yeah, this is my little office. Cute. It's kind of crazy, but, you know, it was just our really busy time as tax season just ended. It was the end of the workday, so Nicole and I walked back to her apartment. She's originally from Maine, but now she lives in New Hampshire, where the halfway house was. I wasn't sure if I was going to stay, what I wanted to do. I, I just knew I wanted a fresh start somewhere where I wasn't, you know, known and recognized for my past. Because it's hard to move forward from that. And I people always told me that, and I more fully understand now. Because I've definitely, New Hampshire has welcomed me with open arms. So I've been given a, uh, an opportunity I really don't think that I would have gotten had I stayed in my own hometown. Nicole is making up for lost time. She works hard during the week. On the weekends, she spends as much time outdoors as possible. We have 48 4,000-foot mountains in our state. I'm at number 24 of my 48 now, and I did it just since June of last year. So some people have been, like, waiting their whole lives, but I'm, like, you know, destined to go every weekend and try to do it because it's just, uh, I never feel more myself and more at home than when I'm on a mountain. We went to Nicole's right. apartment. And we go. I wanted to see where she chose to live now that she finally gets to choose where she's living. So I'm all the way on the top floor, so <laughs> I can pretend I'm climbing mountains up my stairs. <laughs> A lot of Nicole's life has been out of her control. She was in prison for way, way too long because of a legal loophole. So here's my <laughs> my little home. In the <laughs> it's much better than... Some places I've had to be. (laughs) So most certainly better than the halfway house, most certainly better than the eight years that I spent in prison living in a little tiny cell, so. I mean, literally sometimes I just, I look back at my life and I'm like, is this really like my life? 
Nicole's life is split in two, before and after she went to prison. Now, she's an active Republican and is an officer in the Greater Manchester Federation of Republican Women. Nicole also regularly works with local law enforcement. I've sat recently and I'm like, it just, uh, if someone could have told me when I was a teenager that, <laughs> that this is where I would be 20 years from now, I mean, I probably would have given them the middle finger and told them they're crazy. <laughs> but to really understand Nicole now, we have to talk about what her life was like then. When I was a lot younger, my life was relatively normal. It wasn't until, you know, the divorce was starting to come to a head that things got bad. I ended up living with my father, uh, you know, through most of my early teenage years, and I wasn't permitted to see my mother, except on very rare occasions, and so I would often try to run away to go see her. My dad finally got fed up with me trying to run away to go see my mom, and so he basically told me that if I wanted to go see her, and this was a standoff with the cops and everything, he ended up calling the cops because he thought that they would be able to keep me, but they were like, well, you know, she's, uh, she's 15, so she's old enough to choose where she wants to go. And um, so he was like, well, if you go see her, you know, you're not coming back. And I was like, didn't really think he meant it. And I, I went to go see my mom. And he ended up packing up all my stuff and leaving it on her lawn. And she really wasn't at a place where she was ready to have me there yet. In my mind, she left. Young Nicole had little respect for her mother. Like, I loved her, but my respect wasn't there for her because I... I felt she left me. On my 16th birthday party, I planned a keg party in her attic. And she's, she told me I could have five people over. So all of a sudden, people keep coming to the door. And she's like, why is this doorbell ringing again? And I remember we go downstairs and they answer it. And she, someone's like, is Nicole here? She's like, this person doesn't even know who you are. And I'm like, $5, please. And she was like so mad at me. It came to a point where, uh, you know, my dad wouldn't let me there, and she didn't have any space for me, so I just ended up staying with my boyfriend at the time, who was basically a homeless drug addict, <laughs> who was 28 years old, who had no you know, right to be dating a 16-year-old girl, but that's that world. So I, I was in high school at 16 years old, and I was homeless, living in, a, in a, an apartment with no electricity, no hot water. I had to wake up and take a cold shower before school every day. And, you know, mind you, when I was younger, I did have a drug problem. Um, and, I, you know, I, <clears throat> I was not, didn't have a whole lot of respect for adults. And I was, you know, kind of like thought I knew it all. And, um, but I didn't do bad in school. I was doing okay, and I was still in my honors classes and, and doing everything until then. Because then, I mean, then I'm like, well, what am I going to eat? in the morning well, you know how am I going to take a shower and so the problems got worse and uh and then they got even worse when um you know Tavius my boyfriend at the time he ended up going to prison so then I'm left to the streets of Bangor on my own as a teenager so it was only a, you know a matter of time before that got really bad and my addiction got worse and I just ended up getting taken in by the wrong people all drug dealers and teaching me how to sell drugs. And I could sell you three bags of heroin for $50 a piece and, you know, make $15 on each of them, then I could buy myself one. You know, I wasn't ever, you know, someone that was like a, a you know, a big kingpin or anything like that. I was a junkie who would sell drugs to get high. And, you know, I eventually ended up dropping out of high school. Couldn't keep up with it anymore. Uh, 
After Nicole dropped out, she hitchhiked around Maine for a while. Her grandparents owned a store in the summer vacation town of Bar Harbor when Nicole was a kid. I was like, well, I'm going to go to Bar Harbor because Bar Harbor is going to make everything better. That's where all my good memories are. And that's where I caught my charges, and it was in Bar Harbor. Uh, I stole to an undercover agent twice. I even shot up in the undercover cop car because I didn't know she was a cop. <laughs> and, you know, some of my friends in law enforcement have told me I shouldn't talk like this anymore because I've accepted responsibility for it and moved forward. And it is true. But I, sometimes I still go back and I look at, like, young Nicole, and there's no way I would ever let an 18-year-old use drugs in front of me and then let them go off and then use them again because they used me a second time to do another controlled purchase, and I was not the target of the investigation. A few months later, the same undercover cop asked Nicole to buy her more drugs. But she wasn't going to buy enough to make it worth it for Nicole, so Nicole asked her to buy her beer, too. This time, after Nicole bought the drugs, the undercover cop arrested her. She's like, I'm not going to buy beer for you. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do it then. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to do this for nothing. And uh, so she's like, okay. And it was so funny because when I go to court, they're like, oh, the wire broke and, you know, whatever. And it is what it is. Bottom line is I shouldn't have been selling drugs. They were trying to see where I was getting the drugs from. So that was their point in using me. And I ended up doing more time than the than the people I bought all the drugs off from every time. Because I didn't have big enough people to give them. Because when you're a low-level drug offender, um, you also accumulate these convictions very easily because you're always doing these small deals. And you're not smart enough to have the, uh, you know, the big... Well, you just don't care. You're on drugs. It doesn't matter. Here's where things got a little crazy is the federal government picked up one of those cases, but they left the other one state. So I got sentenced in two courts for that for being arrested one time. Uh, I got sentenced to a year and a day. Um, they ran my sentences. The state gave me the same sentence as the feds. It got sentenced concurrently, so meaning I serve it at the same time. So not such a big deal, right? I go and I do my year. I, you know, I'm on probation. You know, a couple years go by. Nicole was sober when she got out of jail, and she stayed that way. She moved in with her little brother in Bar Harbor. You think this place is small? Imagine if the room wasn't there, and it was just this. Like, me and my brother lived in a space together like that. <laughs> yeah, he's two years younger than me, and we were best friends, and we, I always felt like, like uh, you know, because we both understood our family, like, and what we'd been through, and, and we were just always so close. Then Nicole's brother died. So it really, really hurt me. And then I had the guilt to go along with it that, because um, he died from complications from an overdose. He died of pneumonia. That's what the autopsy finally came back and said. But he wasn't a drug addict. So, you know, in my mind, I still, like, it took a lot of, like, time and counseling for me to reconcile that, like, no, you're not responsible for your brother's death. But I always felt like, oh, like, it really, it gave me anger towards drug dealers. <laughs> and I'm like, look, I'm someone that sold drugs, and, like, now I, like, hate them for whoever gave my brother drugs. Well, two weeks after my brother died, I, um, you know, my fiancé at the time, he was really sick. I was taking him around to hospitals everywhere. I didn't know what was wrong with him. And um, one day... They, you know, he, he calls me. He's like, I'm so sick. Why are you? I was like at a hair appointment. And I was like, well, geez, you know, I'll come back. I don't know what's going on. So I go back and, uh, and he's 105 degree fever. So I was like, oh my God. 
I, uh, I go one day to the hospital to go see him. He's not there. I'm like, oh, my God, what happened? And, and then I see his family putting him in the car. And he's like, I'll call you when I'm home. So he calls me on the phone to tell me that he's HIV positive. So all of a sudden, um, I just literally wanted to kill him. My brother just died, and then you tell me this. So, like, literally, I just, uh, I couldn't take it anymore. I was like, I just felt like everything I was trying to do in life was failing. It was just more than a 23-year-old could handle. So, I, um, I relapsed. You know, I can laugh about it now, but I was a very angry young woman. And uh, I ended up actually getting into a really bad car accident. And because the doctors had me on medication, you know, different uh, antidepressants and um, anti-anxiety. And uh, that in combination with substances, I just blacked out and wrapped my car around a telephone pole. I'm lucky to be alive. They sent me back to prison for that, for instead of sending me to rehab or trying to get me help. But, you know, whatever. I'd, I probably did deserve it because who knows? I could have killed someone that night. Uh, but so I went back for four months. While Nicole was in prison for those four months, she asked her dad to hang on to her money. She let her mom stay in her apartment. When she got out, her dad had spent all of her money. Her mom had got her evicted from her apartment. Nicole had no place to live and no driver's license. When I got out, I just did the same thing, and that's when I caught my new charge. I was sitting in a small little county jail in um, Dover Foxcroft, Maine. <laughs> it literally um, held probably a maximum of like seven women, like, and that's like the most I ever saw there. For a whole month at a time, I was the only one there. And so it was like bad too. So I'm basically in solitary confinement because I have no roommates because I'm in a small little town and no other women have been arrested my attorney came in and he brought me a photocopy of the sentencing guidelines with the spots circled because I did think I was looking at the 27 to 33 months because I'd calculated it in the guidelines you know I'd been through this process before not proud to say and so I knew how to take the book you know do their little calculation and figure it out so I knew what I was looking at even based even if you counted my other charges against me you know counting them as charges and not as you know, separate offenses like they did. I fell into a legal loophole. They sentenced me as a career offender. So they said, oh, they're like, well, you have two prior felony convictions. So therefore, this is your third. Therefore, you're a career offender. And therefore, you would normally do 27 to 33 months. However, we're going to sentence you to 188 to 235 based on an enhancement for the career offender designation. Looking at 27 to 33 months is like looking at two to three years. Looking at 188 to 235 is looking at 15 to 20. So I was like, what? Like I literally wanted to kill myself when I got that news. I was just so depressed and I, um, I couldn't believe that it was actually happening. The way the prosecutor chose to, to charge me uh, made a significant difference in my life. And uh, we fought it tooth and nail. 
you know, with my attorney, and um, I had the the DEA on, on my side standing up in court saying I was not the target of the investigation, that, you know, because they were looking essentially at the, those charges from when I was 18 years old, and I ended up, uh, you know, getting sentenced to 110 months, so it's a little under 10 years, uh, but yeah, definitely a life changer. <laughs> If you walk through prison doors, you're going to see a lot of mental illness. You're going to see a lot of people from low socioeconomic status, from poverty, from um, you know, for addiction, a brokenness. For the most part, it's just broken individuals or people that just uh, weren't really given a chance in life, and um, they're not going to get that in it, just walking through a prison door. It's not in their policy that they're going to rehabilitate anyone. It's actually not the goal of prison. The United States goal of incarcerating someone is punishment. It says that they will offer rehabilitative programs, but their goal and their mission statement is to protect society by, you know, housing offenders. Their goal is not written that way. And I remember I was so shocked the day I realized that. One of my goals when I was there uh, was that I wanted to uh, make that place better and create more programs. And so I, I wanted to change that. I saw the propensity for prison to be a great thing for people. So I was like, I'm going to stop labeling myself as a felon. I'm going to stop labeling myself as a criminal. I'm going to stop labeling myself as an addict. I'm not going to identify with it. And I'm going to start identifying with more positive roles for myself. So, you know, I'm going, you know, I'm a hard worker, uh, you know, and then I brought myself to a place where I'm an educator. And, and I had to believe that anything that I set my mind to, I could do. And they're it's like, oh, Nicole, you're never going to start those programs here. They don't listen to us. And I was like, I'm not going to stop until I do. <laughs> Nicole served most of her time at the Federal Correctional Institute in Danbury, Connecticut. In those years, she added or reinstated 14 apprenticeship programs for herself and her fellow inmates. Two of those programs were the first of their kind in the entire Bureau of Prisons. The programs give job training and certification to allow inmates to work in different fields when they're released. But in order to have enough time to do this work, Nicole gave up a lot of her freedom. She did not attend a drug rehabilitation program that would have taken a year off her sentence. Nicole also chose to remain in the higher security prison for an additional year to keep working on her programs. That was instead of moving to the lower security camp nearby that offered more freedom of movement. I'm just gonna believe that I can be who, who I was always meant to be and not any label that was placed on me. The day that I was released from the halfway house, um, you know, which was March uh, 20th of 2015. <laughs> when I wa I had to walk, I had to go check in because I was on home confinement, but I had to go check in and sign my papers and then I was done. I was like, it's over. And so I could just choose to go where I wanted to go. And that's when freedom really set in. <laughs> I just want to be outside because for so many years I'm concrete. I see concrete every day or I'm told that I have to be inside when all I want to do is taste the air and be around trees and be on a mountain and um, to look back at that day when I first got out. I would I it's been a it's been a long hard struggle, but it was it's um freedom tastes pretty good. <laughs> I spent eight and a half years of my life crying myself to sleep wishing that I could be on a mountain. Everything I owned, 
uh, when I was in prison got burnt down. My friend that had my stuff her house burnt down. So I had very few items of anything when I got home. I've literally had to buy everything and start everything from scratch. Do you have any objects that are special to you that made it? You know, I, um, I do actually. I, uh, one of the most important things, which I wasn't sure if was going to be there, was I, I actually have my brother's ashes and a necklace. And I didn't know, you know, what was going to be left um, when I got my stuff back. And then I still have that. And so that means a lot to me. I actually also have, like, he gave me a DC on the wall right there, hanging up with the keys. I don't actually use it. I keep it just hanging up there. But it's his number one sister. He got me that, too. <laughs> Big keychain. Yeah. <laughs> Not a lot made it through the fire. But the things it did were the things that mattered. When Nicole finishes her bachelor's degree, she's going to start a nonprofit for job training and job placement for ex offenders. She wants to create resources to help with the adjustment and reduce recidivism. If you want to help Nicole in her work, one small thing you can do is to ask your employer to ban the box. This means to remove any question about conviction history from your company's job application. This helps formerly incarcerated people to more easily get a job. Nicole, thank you so much for sharing your story. You are such an inspiration to me. Special thanks also to Sam Natali for connecting me with Nicole originally. I also want to give a big delayed thanks to Allison Berenger and Willow Beldum. They're two amazing podcasters who have been giving me feedback every month to make these episodes what they are. You should check out their podcast. Allison's podcast is autobiographical about a young woman navigating New York City and a new career in tech and media. It's called The Intern. Willow's podcast is about the outdoors and our relationship with nature. It's called Out There. Andy Diaz wrote our theme music. For more stories about borders, visit bordersradio.org. I'm Caitlin Pierce. Thanks for listening.